0: And kind of an intense guy, sort of an intimidating guy at first, uh, first blush. He walked into the room and tossed everyone like a, a buckeye, you know, like one of these seeds. And then he start, I mean, almost wordlessly, just starts writing on the chalkboard um, all of these different poetic forms. Um, you know, from Sonnet to Sestina to Villanelle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, okay, you have 10 minutes to write one poem in every one of these styles about the Buckeye. Go.
1: Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So today's guest is Brian Christian. This is a conversation that I'm really excited to share because Brian is someone who I look up to a lot and admire as both in terms of the content of his work, which is looking at the human side of AI, but you know also the way he's he's gone about it, which is a very non-traditional way and um you know he's someone who you know who writes books about AI who got his MFA in poetry. And that's the kind of thing that I really, you know, appreciate in a in a, in a thinker and, and the way someone's career has developed. And so, yeah, he's written three books now. The first one was uh, The Most Human Human, which is basically, you know, framed as like, okay, so, you know, the Turing test about figuring out whether an AI is, you know, you could put it different ways, but sentient or uh, successfully communicating. And basically, can you tell the difference in conversation between this AI, you know, text bot and, you know, a human interlocutor? And so he goes and participates in the, you know, number one contest for this in the world as one of the human interlocutors. And so that's the sort of framing of it. Uh, From there, he goes on to a second book, which was co-authored with a eminent cognitive scientist named Tom Griffiths who uh, you know sort of very much independently of, of, of Brian I have, I've been a big fan of, of Tom's work and, and a student of his sort of line of research in cognitive science for for many years and so that was a really cool melding of okay here are the core things that I have learned about in cognitive science computational cognitive science and uh, to see that spun in a way that is meant for a larger audience and then I really think this new book that Brian has written that came out very recently uh, called "The Alignment Problem," is really uh, a next level of you know investigating AI as a human problem and saying you know from this this really interesting perspective of you know looking at the historical narratives and current research. And just, you know, not only AI theory, but AI applications, trying to construct the whole human web of like, okay, what do we want AI to do and how do we get it to there? And so I think that Brian's contribution to AI, even though he hasn't necessarily written any lines of code that have gone into, you know, a machine learning algorithm or something like that, is a genuinely unique and important one in it because it. It contextualizes AI in this way that AI researchers are not necessarily well-positioned to do. And so he has, he's been someone who's you know, done the work to understand the field, knows what's what, has a pulse on what's going on, has done the investigative and academic work to understand that, and then looks at it from this very humanistic lens— and like i said you know he's got an interesting educational background from from undergraduate at uh brown to doing an mfa in poetry at the university of washington i believe his way of describing his poetry is experimental avant-garde so <laughs> you you can tell there's there's he i guess the way that i'd put it is he has a very big mind and that's something that i really admire uh in in authors and thinkers and and this was a very fun conversation to have and to be honest, we didn't even get to his most recent book or or the, even the core of sort of his, his AI stuff. And so I look forward to doing a part two. But this is a very interesting investigation into the things that sort of got him on the track of thinking about artificial intelligence as a human problem. So uh, without any further ado, here is Brian Christian. Yeah, so the first thing that I usually like to ask uh, people about is where did you grow up?
0: Hmm, uh, so I grew up in Monmouth County, New Jersey, um, so if you're familiar with uh, the MTV series The Jersey Shore, <laughs> I am from The Jersey Shore, yeah. um, and uh, you may all, you know, people also know the area that I'm from as kind of Bruce Springsteen country. Um so the first Bruce Springsteen album was called Greetings from Asbury Park. Um, I grew up a few miles from there and in fact as a kid I grew up trick-or-treating at Bruce Springsteen's house. Was um, he stingy? Was he one
1: of those ones who you know they're rich but they only give you like a little uh they don't they don't give you like the king size, they only give you the little snack size?
0: No, i I, I can verify that it was in fact king size uh candy being being given out by his uh friendly but, you know, intimidatingly muscular uh security guard at the end of a long driveway um no but um yeah so i yeah i grew up in monmouth county new jersey which is i'm like fifth fifth generation monmouth county new jersey it's where my swedish ancestors landed uh started a fishing village back in the i don't know 18 early 18 something all right um so that's that's and i i in terms of like kind of academic trajectory. I was very lucky to grow up in Monmouth County in New Jersey because there is a, um, a truly excellent, um, STEM magnet school, um, called high technology high school, which is often, you know, number one or number two STEM high school in the U S. Um, and I was lucky enough to have the ability to, uh, to apply and to attend. So that was a, an extremely influential part of my kind of early life was the opportunity uh, to be in an environment like that.
1: Yeah. So then in, in addition to that, what's, what did your parents do? Were they academically inclined? Was there, was there like a, did they have an expectation about what you were going to do or, or be that sort of thing?
0: Um, I think my mother was, um, just kind of unconditionally supportive of whatever I wanted to do. Um, and I think she had a big influence in me. She had a kind of a parenting philosophy of exposing me to as many things as possible. Um, which included like getting kind of traditionally male as well as traditionally female toys as a kid. So I had tanks and Barbies, uh, for example. Um, and it was just very important to her to like, kind of offer me as many sort of different experiences from, you know, as, as possible. So we would go to like visit, uh, you know, farms or we would go, yeah. Um, so I think that, that parenting philosophy contributed to a certain omnivorousness in my nature, at least I, I think so, um. She was very patient with my curiosity. Like, there's a story that she tells about um, a tricycle that I had, and we were going to go on a tricycle ride around the neighborhood. And I didn't even make it as far as the neighbor's driveway because, like, every single rock in the road, I would stop, get off of the bike, examine the rock, and kind of decide <laughs> that it was unique and fascinating. And then I would, like, put it in this little basket in the bike and then I would you know get back on and make it only as far as like the next stone or whatever. Um and so that entire outing we never made it to the neighbor's house.
1: The best part of that um, story is that you decide that each one is uh, uh unique and exciting that like every time you inspect it a fresh like well this one might be exciting or it might not be and then you look at it like oh yes, this one actually is in fact was. very, very <laughs> intriguing on its own merits
0: yeah there's sort of an endowment Um, effect of you know because every stick every rock is unique then you you know you come to appreciate it because it's the one that you, you happen to be holding um, but, you know, this actually then, is
1: yeah. uh, this actually is somewhat of a theme that pops up every once once in a while on the show is sort of, uh, I guess you could call it sort of like a Virginia Woolf androgynous mind sort of effect uh, where a lot of, you know, uh, for me, it was uh, dinosaurs and Sailor Moon dolls. I never had Barbies. Huh. It never, like, spoke to me, but I was big on Sailor Moon growing up. Uh, and so I, I had a small, somewhat, uh, you know, covertly kept... Collection of, of 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 that sort of stuff and so that that I always find that interesting. when... Uh, That's intriguing. Yeah, the the like you hear. I'm sure lots of people have, uh, have like do have that uh, experience, especially maybe in our you know sort of broad age bracket as opposed to you know boomers or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I, I find that I find that interesting.
0: It for me, I mean, looking back, it's also funny just to think about you know I how did i absorb the influence of those toys and so forth because i in hindsight i played with my you know quote unquote female toys in a like stereotypically and hilariously masculine (laughs) way so like i had this baby doll that you could like feed with a bottle and stuff like that and i named her uh baby cores after the beer. So I I had this fake baby named Coors, um, and (laughs) of all things. And, um, you know, she was like 18 inches tall. And so the way that this baby would interact with like my GI Joe figurines, which were of course, you know, like four inches tall or whatever was she was like the size of you know, the Stay puffed Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters. She was like godzilla size compared to these. So this baby would sort of crush G.I. Joe's underfoot, you know, like some, you know, movie monster. And, you know, the tank would be firing these tiny missiles at this giant baby that was sort of (laughs) terrorizing everyone. And it's it's that sort of expansive
1: thinking that led you into your authorial career, as we now understand (laughs) it. That was the, the initial precedent for that, I have no doubt. Yes. Oh. Um
0: and then yeah, I would say so um my dad, so my parents divorced when I was in kindergarten, so I had kind of two um parallel relationships um with my parents. My dad was um I think he had a huge influence in my kind of appetite for science. So he he was himself like very prone to obsessions so he would become obsessed with the civil war and then like every time there would be a school holiday we would go drive to a civil war battlefield listening to civil war books on tape you know on the drive there and um you know for a while he was really obsessed with mount everest so i think he kind of imparted to me this um just love of going down these rabbit holes and becoming completely uh, preoccupied with some subject um and he was also really he loved um science. I mean he's still alive, he still he does, but um he was really into books like Surely You're Joking Mr. Feynman or Six Easy Pieces and things like that. And I think that was a big part of his influence was just kind of nerd-sniping me on all of these scientific things, and he would get me books like, you know, the physics of Star Trek or The Physics of the X-Files. Um, and so, and he was also like extremely kind of, um, encouraging of hobbies. So he would like drive me to a chess tournament and like sit in the car all day while I was playing chess, you know, in some hotel ballroom, um, and was like very encouraging and also very kind of, um, patient with that. So I think there was a specific sort of, um, yeah I mean, if in in the most reductive possible frame, I would say it was like breadth came from my mom and depth came from my dad. um you know, that's oversimplifying it, but I think to a first approximation, it looked something like that.
1: We encourage dramatically oversimplified first approximations on this show. So great. uh, Well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) And then, okay. So uh, when you got to Brown, what did you think you were going to study? You ended up getting into computer science and philosophy, but was that was that like a you know was that uh, pair intended when you get in there, or did you discover something along the way like oh I'm going to follow this?
0: Well, I think in some ways there, there was a very pivotal day in my life, which was the day of my high school graduation. Um so as I mentioned, I, I attended a high school called High Technology High School, which is this magical, um, just incredible uh STEM environment. I mean we had English classes and and the rest, obviously, but um very kind of STEM forward. And it was a small school, so there wasn't that much um choice that one had in terms of the types of classes you could take compared to um a regular public high school that might have had a philosophy course or a psychology course or something like that. Um, so part of what attracted me to Brown specifically was their so-called new curriculum where, um, you know, anyone can, you know, there's no, there's no core curriculum for the entire university. Every major obviously has requirements, but um, that kind of freedom felt really good to me having come from a small school that was sort of focused um, so that's part of what attracted me to Brown um, but my high school graduation was a, a weirdly impactful day for me because um, the department or the the school gave out these awards every department would give like the excellence in physics award or the excellence in math award etc cetera. Um, and I knew, you know, I was a very strong student. I suspected that I would get some kind of award just given my GPA or whatever. Um, and so I allowed myself to daydream about, oh, I wonder if I'm going to get the physics one, or I wonder if I'm going to get the math one. Um, and at that point I really identified as a science person who happened to really like writing and music. And I did all these very creative projects. Um, for my um, high school projects that were sort of creative in nature Um, I wrote a rap song about uh, gas laws um, in chemistry and you know things like that Um, but I didn't think of that as in some way as core to my identity as a quote unquote scientist but then as the day of my graduation ceremony approached um, I they, you know, as the ceremony kind of went on, they announced that I had won this like statewide poetry competition. Um, and then they kind of half jokingly uh, named me the poet laureate of high technology high school. Um, and then as they're actually doing the ceremony and the English teacher announces like, OK, and the, the award for excellence in English goes to. And then suddenly this bit flips in my mind and I'm like, oh, that's going to be me. Um, and it was, and so I had this very interesting experience. I mean, it was literally the last 20 minutes of high school, um, where I was prompted with this kind of quarter life crisis of my, you know, I have this identity of I'm a scientist. I'm going to go do robotics or cognitive science or whatever I'm going to do. <clears throat> I happen to really enjoy doing these creative things. And yet here, my high school is saying, maybe it's the other way around. Like, you're, you're winning this poetry competition. You're being named the Poet Laureate. You're getting the Excellence in English Award. Um, and so, that question of, again, to put a reductive frame on it, am I a scientist that loves writing, or am I a writer that loves science? Um, that kind of existential question really loomed over the summer before I went to college and then the beginning of my time at Brown. Um, And so, you know, I started off, I think from the very beginning, I was double, I was registered as a computer science and philosophy major. Um, I thought about doing cognitive science, but I found that I preferred to kind of study the interdisciplinary tributaries of cognitive science separately rather than in the cognitive science department for whatever reason. Um, but I also was taking workshops
1: back then. Was it still, uh, clips cognitive linguistic and psychological sciences?
0: Um, at Brown? Um, it was the department of, I think cognitive and linguistic sciences, cogling sometimes, uh, was the so yeah maybe they uh, they've evolved their acronym over the years i'm not sure did you yourself go to brown uh
1: no my partner did uh uh-huh, okay and, uh, yeah we're very pro brown households uh
0: nice huge i was pilots. gonna say you have a lot of specific either you've like really done your homework or <laughs> yeah that's great
1: yeah uh at any rate yeah what were you saying you um you prefer to study the tributaries separately
0: Yeah, and um, I had a conversation with my um, writing teacher who was a graduate student um, my first semester of college. I was in a fiction workshop, and I went to her office hours, and I said something like, you know, I have no idea if I'm, like, actually any good at writing. Like, just give me me the straight dope. Like, am I... Do I have what it takes? Do I have the goods? Um, because if not, then I'll just go do this computer science thing, and that's going to be great and fine. Um, but, like, let me know if I should kind of drop that and really pursue writing. Um, so just, you know, don't don't spare my feelings because it'll be fine either way, but just tell me if, I, if I'm good enough. And that was a very impactful conversation because what she said was, um, I actually do think you have what it takes quote unquote and like don't quit your day job meaning like don't stop your computer science degree for two reasons one is that uh having a kind of economically viable fallback plan is just a reasonable thing to do if you're going to try to make a living writing but more importantly, if you do succeed um, as a writer, you will have a comparative advantage. You will have um, a disciplinary expertise that people who were English majors don't have. And even if you want to write experimental avant-garde poetry, you're going to be able to make metaphors that no one else can make. And so this will be your sort of ace in the hole. Um, So whatever you do, don't Uh, quit the computer science program. I thought that was, in hindsight, incredibly wise. And, you know, I go back and I think like, oh, this was like a, uh, you know, probably a 24-year-old grad student (laughs) um, dispensing this like extremely uh, influential piece of wisdom. So I feel very grateful um, for that particular juncture. Obviously, that, that sort of foreshadowed a lot of what ended up happening.
1: You know, that, that's really interesting. It's definitely something that I've thought a lot about in my own trajectory of, of wanting to pursue writing, but realizing that the best way to pursue it is perhaps not directly. Um, mm. uh, you know, and, and to put what this person said another way is that, like, the, the reason, one of the reasons you are a successful writer, besides the fact that you can write well, is you have something to fucking write about, right? Whereas, uh, you know, I'm sure you would have come up with interesting ideas, but... If, if you, you know, just studied English or whatever, you know, sort of more direct writing route, I'm going to sit down and write. Uh, I'm sure you would have come up with some stuff. But uh, you have a truly unique perspective into something for all the aforementioned reasons. The, uh, the metaphor that I like to use for this, which uh, may be one that is uh, familiar to you, is uh, off-policy off reinforcement learning. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in reinforcement learning, you have two general strategies for how you're going to, um, you know, basically, strategies for decision making. One is on policy, which is to say, like, I am going to make my decisions that are optimizing for this value that I want, in this case, writing. Or uh, I'm going to set some other uh, uh, thing that I'm going to optimize for. And by virtue of going at that, I'm actually going to get uh, more of what I want. Uh, than I would if i just gone directly there uh, for all sorts of interesting reasons. And I think writing is totally one of those things that helps uh, with a sort of off-policy kind of strategy, right? If you say, uh, I'm going to learn a bunch about this computer science, cognitive science, AI stuff and get writerly material uh, by virtue of pursuing that, that can be a much more effective strategy uh, than being like, well, I'm just going to sit down and come up with some really interesting thoughts.
0: That's certainly you know how it's been for me, and I you know it's interesting um, the Brown when I was there, did not have a literary arts department. Um, you could do creative writing as a specialization within the English degree um, but the there was kind of a split between the creative writing faculty and the more sort of critical historical literature faculty and the writing professors wanted there to be something for non-english majors so they created what was at the time called the capstone program which was basically i mean it's very brown but it's basically like you could major in one discipline but do your thesis with the creative writing faculty and so that's what i did i was a computer science and philosophy double major but i did my thesis with the creative writing faculty that's incredible just perfect Um, and it's interesting they later reorganized the department so that literary arts became its own major and so there was no need at that point for the capstone program Um, so the capstone program was retired I think just a year or two after I graduated but uh, there there is a policy which is that if you are a literary arts major you must be a double major with something else um, so that's you know kind of goes back to this theme of like you have to have subject matter. It's not just all craft. You have to be writing about something, um, and I think that's really nice. I I was also reminded um, as you were talking about this off policy metaphor, which I love. Um, there's a book called Obliquity, um, and it looks at the idea of kind of pursuing goals obliquely and how that's often counterintuitively more, uh, likely to lead somewhere than to go straight at them. Um, there's also a book more in the computer science side of that metaphor, uh, called the myth of the objective, why greatness cannot be planned, um, by Kenneth Stanley and Joel Lehman, who are both computer scientists. Um, and they look at sort of like Exploration and reinforcement learning and things like this through the lens of, you know, the more sort of life thing. So the, me- the metaphor works in both directions, right? Computer scientists are saying like, oh, the, the same way that, you know, approaching things indirectly works in life. We can actually do that um, algorithmically as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, those books sound super fascinating. Uh, so then, uh, so you did your creative writing thesis. How did... So what's up with I guess my question is what's up with the MFA in poetry at UW? Dub? Uh, yeah. Well, how did how did that, like you know yeah? So what? Well, how did that fit into the decision making process? Well, how did how did how did you decide to pursue that after undergrad?
0: Yeah. So it was really the end of my it was really my junior year I would say that I my resolve to actually kind of take a take a swing at becoming a writer or a public intellectual or whatever that that really started to turn into an actual game plan <clears throat> excuse me um somewhere around my junior year um and i think having that resolve or th- having that intention i started to feel like okay, well, maybe I should actually learn some English um, because, yes, I have been studying computer science and philosophy this whole time. Um, and I, I was doing creative writing workshops, but I had never, like, read the canon or I didn't know the, you know, technical jargon, of poetic form or whatever it was. Um, so it felt to me like going into the fall of my senior year Um, it was like, okay, this is the game plan and I'm going to need to like skill up in the actual English part, which is what I've somewhat neglected during the last four years. Um, and so I applied to MFA programs, um, through a kind of path dependent, you know, quirk, I had a poetry portfolio that met the requirements for what graduate programs were expecting, but I didn't quite have enough nonfiction. I was also writing nonfiction. I had taken several nonfiction workshops, but I just didn't have the page count of of work that was kind of like of acceptable quality to me. So it was kind of a pragmatic decision. To apply to poetry programs rather than nonfiction programs. Um, although I deliberately applied to programs that would allow me the ability to work with nonfiction faculty. So I had applied to the Iowa Writers Workshop because John Degada was there and he teaches both in the poetry program and the nonfiction program. I applied to the University of Washington um, where David Shields was teaching who does sort of lyrical, experimental essays. And um, that I I had nonfiction very much kind of in my sights as part of what I wanted to do. Um, But it was partly a practical reality of just, I had the poems of sufficient caliber, I could get into those programs. Um, There was also a sense that I had that, if I was going to do this kind of two-year project of kind of literary boot camp for myself, that poetry was a reasonable discipline to study because it's, it's the discipline in which anything goes. Um, You know, I've sometimes used like mixed martial arts as like a metaphor for poetry. It's like, The superset of all the different martial arts rules. Um, I think of poetry a bit that way, where, uh, you know, you can write a poem in prose, you can write a poem that has narrative, you can write a poem that, like, is expository of some idea or argument, Um, but... If you make a short story that's too weird, it becomes a poem. If you make an essay that gets too weird, it becomes a poem. But there's no way to make a poem so weird that it's no longer a poem. It just becomes a more interesting poem. Um, and that appealed to me. You know, at Brown on the English department uh, building, there was chiseled into the stone side of the building uh, this quote from Gertrude Stein that said, And then there is using everything. Um, And I loved that. And I I used that as an epigraph for my graduate application essay. And I was talking about, you know, poetry in particular is the literary genre where you can use everything. You can include dialogue. You can include bits of stage directions. You can include bits of um, kind of essayistic prose. Um, And so it felt like a way to kind of, like the, you know, the full body workout, so to speak. It was like um, a way to really kind of get my uh, verbal chops tuned up. So I have many
1: questions about this, but I'm going to limit Great. it to the to the main one, uh, which is, oh, ask away. you know, looking looking back on that, you know, so that, that makes a lot of that. That seems like a good description of where you were at the time, a reason why you would do it. Um, looking back on that, how did that decision play out? Do you think that that actually was that meaningful, meaningfully contributed to your uh, ability and your craft as, as a writer and you wouldn't have been able to do things that you did today? Or was that a process of buying you time? Ultimately, what do you make of that now? Looking back on it. <clears throat> um. It's an interesting question. Because speaking as uh, someone who's in graduate school right now, there is a lot of time buying involved in yeah. uh, in in any any graduate program.
0: Yeah, it didn't. It, in a funny sense, it didn't feel like I was buying time in the way that you might expect. Because I went to the University of Washington with a full scholarship, but I was teaching, and teaching was so time consuming that it felt like I barely had time to do my graduate work which was extremely stressful and kind of depressing um, because I was like wait a minute why am I here I'm here to do the graduate work but the thing that I'm doing to support the graduate work is like preventing me from doing the actual work that I'm here to do so like what's why why am I what am I doing so it it didn't feel like I was buying myself that much time in that sense. Although certainly um, I think that is a reason that writers in particular go to grad school and go do PhDs, um, even like critical theory PhDs afterwards, just to kind of stay in the academic environment as long as possible. Um, I think it was... Was a useful time to experiment, so I think like to use another uh, reinforcement
1: learning uh, metaphor. You can do exploration versus exploitation. This was a that's exactly it. That's exactly where I was going. Yeah, you took the words
0: out of my mouth. So, um, in in a funny way, like my MFA thesis. Is actually Brian. By worse. the way, when
1: I said you and I yeah. have a lot of overlapping interests and thinking, think about things in a in a similar way, and, and are going to be familiar with a similar vocabulary, I wasn't I wasn't shitting you. I was I was I was uh, I was uh, <laughs> I was not kidding about that. Anyway, sorry, yeah. to interrupt. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, uh, yeah. The, the we're we're a rare breed of people that use the explore exploit trade off, you know, as a part of daily life. I mean, even my wife and I will be like ordering takeout, and she'll be like, "So, do you want to explore or exploit?" Yeah, um, which is just, really, is that's the, the
1: highest calling of the Explore Exploit is ordering <laughs> uh, food. Um, exactly. I think the apotheosis of nerdiness on those, that when you hang out with enough computational, you know, sort of people, you start describing things in terms of your priors. Everything is about yeah. Bayes' oh, rule, yeah. ultimately. So I think oh, yeah. that, like, Explore Exploit, like, has some, like, it's still, like, there's some, you know, grounding in, in normal person reality. But once you start talking about, well, my priors on this are... Uh, you know, X, Y, and Z. That's how, you know, you've transcended into into this esoteric (laughs) land of computational, formalistic nerdiness.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think the rationalist community has done a lot to turn the word prior into a kind of, yeah, uh, normal part of the lexicon, at least in that community. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the explore-exploit trade-off, my... In my opinion, my MFA thesis is actually a worse manuscript than my undergrad thesis, which is somewhat paradoxical. But it's the paradox is resolved through the explore exploit trade off. Which, which was actually
1: like, worse than your high school poem that won the, the state championships. So really, just <laughs> a long downslope. Yeah. <laughs> eventually,
0: I you know. Then you
1: bottomed yeah. out, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get on track here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I think the. Um, My undergrad thesis was um, the exploit phase of kind of my early style or my early technique or whatever you want to think about it Um, and then I began kind of a, a maturation but the beginning of that maturation was this period of just kind of trying a ton of different stuff and so at the end of two years my MFA manuscript is really just a catalyst, like, you know, bestiary of all these weird different things that I was trying, um, and so it was not a point of arrival. It was, it was a kind of this circumference of um, experimentation. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, you know, one, one way in which I think about my MFA experience was the, the first 20 minutes of my MFA was i went into a classroom my my first workshop was with richard kenny who's a brilliant poet um and kind of an intense guy sort of an intimidating guy at first uh first blush he walked into the room and tossed everyone like a a buckeye you know like one of these seeds and then he start i mean almost wordlessly just starts writing on the chalkboard Um, all of these different poetic forms, um, you know, from the sonnet to Sestina to Villanelle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, okay, you have 10 minutes to write one poem in every one of these styles about the Buckeye, go. Um, And so the idea that you... I mean, most people would say it's hard to imagine writing a sonnet in 10 minutes, let alone a sonnet and a sestina and a villanelle and a this and a, and a guzzle and this and that and the other thing. Um, and at the time, I only knew what about half of those words even meant. And I just got this big grin on my face because I knew we were being hazed. I knew we were being set up to face plant, and the point was that by the end of this quarter, by the end of our t- mFA or whatever, we were going to be given a similar test, and we would pass and that's exactly what happened um, and it was for me, it felt like a kind of boot camp experience, um you know, like the sort of drop and give me twenty lines of blank verse like that 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 kind of thing that was the experience and i Um, I do think that having poetic chops has served me even writing, you know, nonfiction prose. Um, You know, for example, many, many years ago, I was working on an essay which never got published and it didn't end up being one of my better pieces. But um, there was a particular... Um sentence in the essay talking about kind of like the you know thermodynamic uh inevitable thermodynamic decay and just sort of the fact that the universe was this finitely sized thing that was all and we were maybe alone in the universe and it was all gonna turn into like heat radiation and the, there was a sentence in the essay that said that all there is. Is all there is becomes a kind of violence and I was very like charmed by the music of that sentence and I was like yeah I was kind of its one of the only parts of that entire essay that I remember and I was thinking about why do I like that sentence so much I sort of like it beyond its actual quality and then I realized like oh it's in the Emily Dickinson meter like the four and three and one and two and three and four and one and two and three. That all there is is all there is becomes a kind of violence. Um, and so, I mean, this is the funny, this is the, the secret about knowing poetry is that, you know, the music of language is, is obviously at play, even in a prose context. And there's no rule that says you can't make a sentence that has the, you know, Dickinsonian meter and smuggle that in at the end of a paragraph and kind of turn up the the linguistic music and create this memorable moment. So those forces, even, even the things we think of as too stuffy to even be relevant to contemporary poetry like meter, um, you know, at all language has meter. So if you develop an ear for it, then that informs your prose and your prose crackles in a way that um, even people who have never th- studied poetry or care about it, um are still gonna be subliminally affected by like the words just come together in a pleasing way. Um and even for me, I mean I, I rarely explicitly think about meter, but I think that having been drilled for two years in poetic meter creates a kind of uh subconscious competence um, that makes my prose better. So, you know, that sort of thing.
1: Absolutely. I love that. Um, so, you know, we're 40 minutes into this and we're still by way of preference. We haven't even gotten into your career as a professional writer yet. Uh, but you know, before we move on to that, I'm curious who, who are your, uh, favorite poets or, or or works, um, or collections of works that have most, um, you know, meant the most to you.
0: Um, you know, as a, kid i was really into frost i was really into dickinson um in college i got really into ee e. cummings um in terms of the actual contemporary living poets um the first poetry book by a living poet that i ever read is a book called science and Flower by forrest gander who ended up he taught at brown and he ended up being one of my mentors um And I think that's an astounding book. It's a wonderful book. Um, And Forrest himself, um, in addition to having been a mentor of mine, in addition to having been kind of the first contemporary poet that I really fell for, um, he has a background that's not unlike mine. So he was actually um, a geology major. Um, He worked as a land surveyor. He worked... I think in the oil industry, which is like about one of the only career paths for geology majors outside of the uh, university, um, ended up getting a cancer diagnosis in like his early 30s and almost died and had this kind of realization in the hospital that he didn't give a damn about land surveying or finding oil or anything. He cared about like the deeper meaning of life and literature in particular was this great consolation to him in these kind of liminal weeks where he thought he was going to die. And he, having survived the experience, his whole life changed and he became a poet kind of thereafter. But he became a poet who has like a ridiculously specific vocabulary for the earth. So where a normal poet might just say like, you know, the the shapely hills or the sweeping grass or whatever he'll say like you know the diatomaceous schist you know in these blah blah, i don't even have the vocabulary right but he he will use this like almost almost comically precise language to refer to the natural world where a normal poet would just have been like the the red rocks or something which, um,
1: uh, like, diatomaceous earth and other, you know, technical terms are going to have an inherent meter of their own, which gives you, you know, further material to rip off of.
0: Yeah. Um, so I I saw in him, you know, this early model of how you could use the rigorous vocabulary of science to an aesthetic purpose. Um, so he became a really... Um, influential poet for me I I mean I could there are many many poets Um, Arthur Z uh, S Z E is is a fantastic poet um, who has a kind of kaleidoscopic um, I don't know how to exactly describe it but there his poems sort of anything can happen uh, from one line to another and and they can change mood very quickly from like heartbreaking to comic to kind of analytic, um, and I I was very inspired and still am by that sort of capaciousness um, that's that sort of high high information entropy sort of any anything can happen. Um, another poet uh, Ben Lerner, who is kind of I guess young, young Gen X. Um, so he was, he went through the program at Brown actually a few years before me. Um, he has, he's a novelist now, but, um, his first three books were poetry and he was doing wonderful things with, um, form and also with register. So there's a line of Ben learners that i always think about, which is, um, a beauty incommensurate with syntax had whooped my cracker ass." And I think this is it so interesting thinking about this in a kind of word vector context. So there's a slight digression, but Ezra Pound in the early 20th century wrote this influential essay where he basically said there are three, three tools that poets have. Um, what he called melopeia, fanopeia, and logopeia, and melopeia you can think of as like melody, so it's the, you know, the meter, the rhyme, that sort of thing. Um, and he said, you know, you can't, you can't really translate this, but you can appreciate it even in a foreign language. Um, there's fanopeia, which is kind of the the phantom in the mind that gets created by the Thing, you know, if I say petals on a wet black bough, you see that in your mind. Um, that's the easiest thing to translate. Um, and then the third category is logopia, which is uh, a term that he coined, and it sort of refers to the the context in which a word is used. Um, so, you know, one example would be like poo and stool have like similar melopoeia, uh, similar phanopeia, but they're in fact used in completely different contexts. One is used by toddlers and their parents. One is used by you know clinicians. And so that's the logopoeia difference. So basically, all of the action as I saw it in late 20th, early 21st century poetry was happening in the logopoeia. It was not necessarily poems that were doing really cool rhythmic or sonic things. It was not necessarily poems that were giving you a really cool image in your mind. Um, it was poems that were doing weird, often hilarious, surprising things with like the linguistic register, like um, syntax and, so- and cracker ass in the same, yeah. uh, you know,
1: sort of juxtaposition
0: exactly so yeah it like creates an impossible rhetorical context of like you can't imagine someone ever actually putting those two things in the same sentence like Mm. who is this person who are they addressing like um and that i think it's interesting again in the context of kind of contemporary computational linguistics which is to say like in some ways all that we care about in building you know gpt3 or bert or whatever is just building you know somewhat parsimonious representations of the context in which words appear and everything else like comes out of that we'll just build these word vectors that can predict when a word is going to appear in a certain context um we're going to ignore what the word sounds like we're going to ignore what the word actually kind of refers to in the world it's like entirely about linguistic context So, I mean, I don't know if there's any deeper point to make there, but I just, it's interesting to me seeing like this, this thing that Ezra Pound put his finger on in the early 20th century that there wasn't even a word for, and he sort of saw this foreshadowing of its role in aesthetics, you know, then that becomes kind of the hot topic on the scientific side of language as well. So I don't know all these, you see all these connections. I forget what we were actually talking about. Sorry.
1: <laughs> I think this was was exactly what we were talking about the entire time. Great. Uh, Beautiful. Uh that's that's amazing. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. I'm I'm looking forward to looking into uh some of those those poets whose whose work that I don't know. Um I certainly don't have a, a vast knowledge of contemporary poetry and that sort of stuff, but there's one um, uh, that I really love and have revisited many times called love an index by, uh, I believe her name is Rebecca. Uh, I always get her last name wrong cause it's so scan, like generically Scandinavian to me. Um, but it's like, uh, uh, Linderberg, uh, hmm. Rebecca Linderberg. I'll have to fact check that. Um, but it's, Uh, I'm not I'm sure that it's not the highest you know sort of uh, uh, in in poetical you know sort of cutting-edge like you're talking about but the the basic idea of is okay so you know when you when you get the book in your hand uh, you know love and index it's gonna be a love story great and then the first thing you see after that is that there's a dedication um, to someone uh, you know uh, the the author's female this person's a male they've died okay Uh, Mm. And then uh, what the story uh, does, all the poems are, are connected chronologically and sort of conceptually, is that it is a sort of textured love story that for each phase of the relationship from meeting... Uh, or you know, breaking up with the previous partner to you know, first time having sex to uh, you know, uh, uh, you know all this to the 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 big you know sort of climax, which is love and index, in which you finally learn what happens to the mm. to the person who uh, the love story is about, who who died, and that sort of you 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 finally learn what happens, uh, and it is one of the most unique, uh, you know, just ways of use this word again, texturizing a a narrative uh, to, you know, get to each part of this love story. And for each section of it, you find a form uh, of which there are uh, lots of different, uh, you know, a a wide array of of political forms in there that capture that specific aspect of it. And I I mean, love stories are one of my favorite genres uh, mm. in in general i'm just i'm um, big on love stories to me it' uh, uh very pure form of, of, of storytelling um and that is one of the most unique uh ways in which I've seen that that genre rendered
0: that's really nice yeah yeah there's you're saying so each section is kind of in its own form mm-hmm. so each each each
1: each scene they're not i section yeah. they're they're scenes they're uh you know this is this is the aspect that we're now considering in the And I think most of them are concrete times and places, but they all have a sort of, you know, tone, uh, feeling to them, you know, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's great.
0: I just finished reading the book, um, in the dream house by Carmen Maria Machado, um, who's an excellent fiction and, uh, essay writer. And it's a similar, that book uses a similar motif where each page, or each chapter, the chapters are kind of never more than three pages long, will be like um, a a, a moment in this narrative, but also like now it's as a murder mystery or now it's as a love story or now it's as erotica or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, there's a book that I also am very fond of. It's called Exercises in Style by Raymond Cano, who was Hmm. a member of the, the French... Uh, avant-garde group, the Ulipo, the Ouvre de Literature Potential. Um, And he basically made an entire book out of: let me just take the most banal narrative that I can. It's like a guy steps on someone else's toes on the bus, there's an altercation, he apologizes, someone gets off the bus. Later that day, I see the same guy in a different part of Paris. That's the entire story. It's completely boring, quotidian but he does it a hundred different ways like as a movie review as a philosophical treatise as this yeah. um yeah and oh, god, uh, i love that the I love entire that. pleasure of the book is just in seeing how how differently the same thing can be rendered
1: yeah um that's that's so funny um god you're gonna you're, you're probably gonna hate this because you're actually trained in you know literary exegesis and that sort of stuff but i have this totally crackpot theory about narratives okay that um, uh, speaking of oversimplified uh, first approximation, you know, sort of binary oppositions, I have this, this theory that every story uh, can be categorized as either a love story or an action story. Uh, mm. And the fundamental component, the fundamental sort of structure of a love story is that you have two entities which are destined to be together, but the world keeps apart. Right. This is, um, you know, uh, this is like, um, you know, uh, Sleepless in Seattle. You've got Tom Hanks mm. and Meg Ryan. We know the entire. We want them to be together, but spoiler alert: they don't get together until the very last scene. That's the that's that's the, the quintessential love story. Action stories are um, uh, that you have uh, two uh, uh, two entities which are fundamentally in opposition to each other. They are, uh, you know, in a magnetic sense, repelling one another rather than, um, you know, uh, attracting one another. And the world tosses them together, right? The classic Mm -hmm. version of this, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And then the story is about how, Mm -hmm. you know, there's creating conflict by putting those things together. And uh, in, of course, a totally oversimplified way, but nonetheless, you can look at any given story that you have and say, uh, whether the th- fundamental thing that is driving the plot is the attractive force or the, the, the repulsive force. And of course, not uh, you know, there's a set of imagery that one associates with e- each one, um, but uh, oftentimes the, uh, you know, the imagery and the, the structure of, of the story are at odds with one another. So for example, Brokeback Mountain, right? Is this a, a love story or an action movie, a western? Uh, mm, and, mm. Uh, you know, it depends on how you, you know, to sort of interpret the, the plot and that sort of stuff. Uh, but uh, just because they're dressed like cowboys does not mean it's actually uh, a Western, right? And uh, so, yeah, I, I I always think about the core of a narrative uh, being in one of these two camps. And, of course, my, my ontology has subdivisions on, on both sides, which are, of course, very important to the theory, but I won't get into now. <laughs>
0: Um, that's great. And I like, I mean, I like also highlighting the tension that can exist between form and content. Um, right. That I, one of my crackpot theories is when form and content are in tension, form wins. Um, so for example, if you ask someone how they're doing and they say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Um, form wins. You know, they're not good. Um, if you ask them how they're doing, they're like, Oh, terrible. You know, like, Oh, you know, I'm like the worst week of my life. Um, then the form wins and they're okay. Um, but you know, you you can, there's a lot of fun to be had with this, obviously artistically. Yeah. Um, of, you know, happy lyrics to a minor key or vice versa, you know, et cetera, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's I, I love that idea of the tension between form and, and content, and the way you're talking about. And in a sense, I feel like that's a core part of uh, what you do. Right? Is that hmm. uh, the content is fundamentally about artificial intelligence, esoteric cognitive science, algorithms, and, and all, you know all this sort of stuff, right? And the way people traditionally treat that content is academically, right? It is the it is the content of scientific papers, it is lectures, it's you know all of these sort of things. And what you bring to the table is to uh, consider that content in a new form, right? To say, mm. uh, I am now going to treat this as, I'm gonna treat AI as a, as a human enterprise, I'm gonna treat it as a literary enterprise, I'm gonna treat it as a narrative enterprise. What do we learn about that? From doing that, and the crazy thing about your work is that we actually do learn something about that—that that the people who are studying AI, uh, you know, uh, as as much as they are, you know, sort of a self-contained thing, right? You are adding a novel, you know, contribution of of knowledge or whatever you want to describe it as, to the a- AI world broadly construed, by virtue of putting this content in uh you know under, under this the, the scrutinizing lens of a different uh, uh form you know
0: yeah i appreciate that i mean i think um it's funny for me thinking about this form and content question in my own nonfiction work because i mean the funny thing is my training was always in like you know, avant garde, you know crazy town like i you know i was went to Brown, which has a very avant-garde reputation in terms of its literary department. Um, UW is a little bit more, uh, I don't know, con- conventional or, or sort of anchored in certain traditions. But um, I, I never studied how to write, like, book-length popular science or sort of you know, literary journalism, however you want to really categorize it. Um, and I mean, the early drafts of the most human human, for example, were very formally adventurous, very, you know, there was a version that had like three one page chapters. Um, there was a version that had like a table of context, a, a contents that was like um, a matrix with like an X, axis and a y-axis and then you could sort of like figure find certain content based on the intersection of like one of these two different things there were all sorts of very avant-garde things that i explored in the process of writing that book and the funny thing was what ended up shaking out of all of that was a book of like you know 11 25 page chapters which is pretty (laughs) conventional and so it's like I found my way to the conventions of my own field by like the most backwards, convoluted route. You derived them from first
1: principles. I basically—that's right. I you basically derived, derived like the conventions from nonfiction first principles. storytelling from first principles. Uh, yeah. But it is interesting that you mentioned the the one-page chapter things because uh, the most human human does strike me as very fragmented in 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 like in the way that it is. Like it as a matter of fact is structured in fragments, which are ultimately quite brief, even if they're not, um, uh, you know, chapters in and of themselves. They are snippets, which one could imagine sort of rearranging. In uh, you know, yeah, you you have a lot of pieces to fit into this linear puzzle. You know.
0: Yes, that I mean, there was literally a moment where I like printed each of these small things out on separate pieces of paper and like covered my entire dining table, um, and swish them around to figure out like what the chapters wanted to be. So that was very much part of it. Um, and for, in some ways, I think one of the hardest things about the kind of nonfiction that I do is the, for me, it's like the order of N factorial, question of what order does it go in um like that i find paralyzing you know it's like okay here are the n things that i want to touch but there are n factorial ways that we can sequence that and for me that can become like extremely an extremely paralyzing um part of the composition process because often um Often you get these kind of catch-22s where you mention something and you think to yourself, ah, it would really be helpful if the reader already knew, you know, X. So let's put X first. But then when you're rereading it, you're like, "Mm, in the X part, it really would be helpful if they already had an understanding of Y. Um, And you can create these cycles. And um, I think that is one of the, like, underappreciated difficulties of nonfiction writing is like you have to serialize everything like you are working in a one-dimensional medium um so it's like i don't know for yeah for people who know what what t-sne is it's like you have this super multi-dimensional thing and you have to do t-sne into like a one-dimensional uh visualization of that data and like it, the the idea of compressing something down to a one-dimensional representation just sounds like ridiculously impoverished, um, to the point of, you know, almost comedy. But that's that's what writing is. It's a one-dimensional medium. So those, yeah, that I think is a is a huge, <laughs> huge part of what uh, keeps me up at night.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. God, I could ask you about structure for the next. Two hours, and then you know we we uh would would not even get on to uh, other Im- important stuff and, and that sort of stuff. So what do you what do you want to? Uh, we're at the hour mark here. What should we? What should our game plan be? Should we wrap it up and, and move on with our lives? Um, uh, or a couple um, questions about the recent book.
0: I'm happy to keep going. So I defer to you. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah. Let's. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I want to ask you a little bit about the the most recent book. Maybe try and draw a little bit of a line from from where we've gotten to to, to, to where you are now and that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, great. But one totally trivial question that I have is, uh, do you feel it's it's compulsory to quote Newton standing on the shoulders of giants in each of your acknowledged section, acknowledgement sections? Because you did it in both uh, human-human and alignment problem.
0: Wait, did I? I yeah, I, I think so. I have an uh, epigraph from... Um warren mcculloch well but let me see i've got it in front of me let's um, find out
1: uh i think one of them uh i think it might have been a lineup problem that you actually said you know as newton said standing on the shoulder no no, no it was it was it was human. in
0: algorithms to live by because we're talking about um i think we're talking about LaTeX. um no you i actually i don't have well, i
1: I, I just was remarking on that like if if unless my my initial notes were uh incorrect that is something that you, you quoted in both acknowledgement sections and so i just wondered if there was a, a theory uh related to that uh in in both of your solo authored books
0: um, yeah so. i i could be um no okay you're right you are right I, um, we can go back and fact check and and see this no uh, i'm 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 ver- verifying this You are correct. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's so... It's the cliche that's a cliche for a reason, right? Um, And I think... um, I think in The Most Human Human, I said something like... um, I tried to recast the analogy into a more kind of neuroscience form of like... You know, all we do is like some of the uh you know action potentials that are that come our way yeah. so um you know we have to be grateful for all the <laughs> the layers of the network that pre- uh that preceded us so that's, um i also i mean i think um software gives us such a good way of thinking about the contributions of the people that came before us that um you know, the the software stack presents in an almost literal way a kind of fossil record of like, you know, behind Mac OS, Big Sur. You know, if you if you go down enough layers, you get to you know Darwin, which is like based on this stuff that was coming from the nineteen seventies and so forth. Um, it's like going back in time, you know, um, and I'm very aware of the fact that you know my books are written using tools like git and you know tech and law tech. um and for an upcoming project i interviewed leslie lamport and so it was very cool to actually meet the person who wrote the software that i used to write my books so um that sort of standing on the shoulders of giants is like, um, you know, we, we are in, installing the uh, dependencies of our uh, forebears, <laughs> you know, that's like, that's the, the the packages that we use.
1: I'm sure that's how Newton would have put it, had he had he the terminology, had he the nomenclature right. to do so. Uh, I want to uh, sort of bring us around on this on this question of, of structure. And uh, so I'm curious, we talked a little bit about the structure of most human human your first solo authored book, and then your second book was co-authored with Tom Griffiths. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess, you know, in your, in your new book, another solo authored book, what changed in the way that you structured or approached this book, having done, you know, both projects of, of, of a solo authored and co-authored book? What, what was different this time around, or, or, or what did you learn? What, 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 was, what was unique about, about this experience?
0: Yeah, I mean, my first two books structurally, um, maybe the finished product is less different than the actual process. The process was very different, in part because of the collaborative um, dimension of algorithms. Um, Most Human Human was written in a very bottom-up way. I had never written anything at book length before. Um, I didn't know how... One writes a book. I mean, that was the funny thing about doing an MFA was like the longest thing I did for my MFA was, you know, a 20 page essay. And so then I just didn't know how to think about the kind of structural questions at book scale or the project management questions of, you know, doing a several year long project like that. Um,
1: pragmatically speaking when did you get an agent for
0: most human human was it was it uh because it
1: f- it feels very much like oh I'm on to this thing it's like there's this there's this competition and you can be the human and there's like the most and like it feels like that happened to you and then you're like well this is a this is this is great uh yeah. and then then you sort of built off it um from the like I've got a thing here that's great I'm gonna turn it into a book and I know it's great I don't really know much about the bookmaking, but I know it's it's going to be worthwhile. That kind of is, is how it felt that the that it that it kind of came across.
0: It does feel that way, but the truth is actually it's the other way around. Mm. Um, so I was already committed to writing a book called "The Most Human Human," that was going to explore these questions of the Turing test. What do computers teach us about humanity? Um, this had been a theme i mean if you really want the the deep history i had written a prose poem called the most human human in one of my mfa workshops with uh the poet linda beards who's an excellent poet and we were doing a unit on prose poetry i wrote this prose poem that talked about how um imitation often reveals something deep about what authenticity is So, you know, I was riffing on the fact that I I had seen on the Lord of the Rings DVD, there was, you know, an interview with the sound designer. And he said, for some reason, test audiences find that a mixture of real sound and Foley sound is rated as more, quote unquote, real than the real sound alone or the Foley sound alone. This kind of stuck in my head. I was thinking about the Turing test, this idea of things that imitate us, what do they show us about what we really are, etc. So that began as a prose poem in like the spring of 2008. Um, And I was also writing a series of essays. The first essays I ever published were about various ways in which computing teaches us something about the human experience. My first published essay is about latency, network latency. And what does that teach us about kind of communication and intimacy? Um, I wrote one about memory, Um, you know, this sort of metaphysics of what's the difference between losing a pointer to a block of memory and like actually overwriting that memory. And I sort of think about that in the context of my grandmother having Alzheimer's. Um, I wrote an essay about compression. What does sort of information entropy teach us about communication and literature? I started to feel... And by the end of my MFA, these essays were getting published, um, almost a hundred percent of the time, um, in terms of like sending these things out and a magazine being like, "Yes, we'll print that." Um, and it started to feel like I was getting traction with the nonfiction end of my writing, more dramatically more so than with my, the poetry side. And I also found that at some level, I just cared more about doing those essays than I did about the poetry that I was writing at that time. So it started to feel to me like, okay, my first book length thing is going to be nonfiction. Um, And I thought it was going to probably be a collection of essays that kind of explore these different verticals. I almost imagine like the table of contents being like a motherboard and, you know, pointing to the different things. Like this essay is going to be about memory. So it'll point to RAM or whatever. This essay is going to be about, you know, network bandwidth. So it's going to point to the, you know, the IO bus. Or whatever. Pointers
1: are such a great poetic tool, by the way. Uh, one of the great concepts of computer science, uh, but like that, that's such a clever, clever usage of them as a, as a poetical device.
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, and yeah. yeah, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of really interesting metaphysical questions about like, you know, if you lose access to something, but it's still there, is that different? You know, like people who have Bitcoins, but they don't have the, um, you know, the password or the hash or whatever it is. Like, do they still really have that money? It's like having a million dollars locked in a safe, you know, a clear acrylic safe. Um, it's also came up like legally. There was a lawsuit against Rockstar Games, which makes Grand Theft Auto, because they had included a like quasi pornographic kind of Easter egg but the content like in within the game uh but the only way to access that part of the game was to like hack the source code and like manually access this thing and so it kind of set up a for me a fascinating legal battle around like the metaphysics of like what does it mean to actually ship that content if you if it's on the dvd but there's no way to access it other than manually going to some memory address um can they be blamed for having like put this content out that for me was juxtaposing with these questions of like does my grandmother is she still in there like does she still recognize me things like that um and i you know i mean this is like my whole career is really about these questions of like looking turning to computer science in moments like that uh thinking about these kind of very serious questions so i thought my first book was going to be a collection of essays that just explored different verticals of that kind of separately obviously there's this uniting theme and then i went back to this prose poem that talked about the turing test and i thought you know actually this prose poem should be an essay itself. You know, there's more there's more here to unpack than a poem's worth. And I think it should be like the titular essay of the collection um, because that um, that theme of the Turing test that could actually, I could weave that through the entire book. Um, I was inspired by books like The Next American Essay by John Degada where he has kind of this one essay that runs longitudinally through the like, spaces between all the other essays and I thought okay so maybe this essay called the most human human could actually run between the other essays and it could be this like uniting fabric um so then I was like okay I've got an essay collection called the most human human that has this running thread of the Turing test um I to make a long story short I went to a literary conference I met uh this woman named Janet Silver who was an editor at the time at Houghton Mifflin she later um, became a literary agent and she and I had this had established this rapport. And so when she left her editing career to become an agent, she wrote to me and said, do you have an agent? Um, if you don't, I'd love to try to sell that book that you were talking about. And I didn't have an agent because all of the agents I was talking to were just profoundly uninterested in what I was trying to do. Um, I remember one person saying to me, I don't get it. So you're like a poet, but you want to write an essay about computers. Like that's the, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. (laughs) Like the worst premise for a book I could imagine. Um, And I was like, you don't get it. Um, But Janet got it. And um, so she, um, you know, getting her email in like March of 2009 was like winning the lottery. It felt to me. Um, And so we worked on, selling this book proposal and at some point in the process of putting the book proposal together it started to feel like okay maybe this isn't a collection of essays maybe this is a book and there are chapters you know but there there, there's a stronger glue than just being sort of separate verticals of this um thing but there is actually kind of an ongoing exploration that moves from one chapter to another and then i remember saying to her you know, I could actually like go to the Turing test and like do it. And she was like, oh yeah, that's happening. <laughs> like you're doing that. That is, that is what's going to happen. And that's like, that's how this book will, will make sense. Um, and that, so anyway, there's a long winded way of saying the idea that I was actually going to be a human confederate because I, I even before I was thinking about being in it, I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll just go to this thing and sort of cover it almost like a journalist. And then ultimately I'm like, oh, no, I should actually be in it. So that for me was like almost an afterthought or sort of the cherry on top of this thing that i had been thinking about already for like years at that point. Um, but I think when you read the book, the causality looks like it's the other way around. It looks like I had this interesting experience and then I like meditated on the deeper ramifications. But... Yeah, the deeper ramifications came first. That's that's the uh, the irony of that book.
1: God, that's that's so amazing. And you know, uh, I think I want to you know sort of tie our conversation up here because I think that's what I really wanted to get to the bottom of in all of this is is the question of when did you start thinking of AI as a human problem, right? Which is I think a tidy way of of sort of generalizing what you've done uh, in your in your uh, you know your your work so far and. Uh, I think that you know looking at what you've just you know the sort of story that you just told from the, the perspective of your training that you had before that really uh, to me it gives gives a lot of insight into uh, where that how that how that started to develop from you. And then of course, part two of this is like, okay, now that you have, a, a solid grasp and like you said like you have traction on 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 what's going on uh here and, and and you you understand it in this deep way now you actually get to the the point of having done all this stuff that you know myself and other people are going to be familiar with you but we'll save that for a part two of the conversation at some point in the future so
0: that sounds great
1: um brian thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me today
0: yeah it's uh, it's my pleasure thanks for having me